Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to episode number four. If you're listening to this on the day it drops, then happy Friday the 13th. To all of our listeners, we'd love to know who you are. You can make yourself known by leaving us a comment on iTunes or just saying hi to us on Facebook. And now, whoever you are, wherever you are, I hope you enjoy the fourth ever episode of Boys and Ghouls. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads, psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. The undead. You ever talk to a corpse? It's boring. Throw the third switch! The third switch! Give my creation! Literally, we just finished it less than half an hour ago. I want a better segue. All right. <laughs> Hold on a second. I liked that segue. <laughs> you can suck on it. Okay. Go ahead. Not long ago, we lost a brilliant Los Angeles-based writer, uh, Ray Bradbury. We sure did. What was it, June 5th? Something like that? Very recently. And, Very recently. Uh, he's buried here in Los Angeles, a place he uh, he's not from but made his home for many years. In the same cemetery as uh, Marilyn Monroe. Oh, wow. And uh, many other celebrities. And where? which one is that? That's the Westwood Memorial. That's right. Okay. I haven't been to that one. I went as recently as my birthday. Oh, okay. I oh, made... I saw that you went to Hollywood forever. Yeah, I birthdays. made a little... You did the cemetery tour? I just made a little day trips around Los Angeles. Do you know the difference between a graveyard and a cemetery? No. A, ce- a graveyard is affiliated with and adjacent to a church. And a cemetery. You can't be called a graveyard unless you're next to a church. So right. Hollywood Forever Cemetery, right? That's the difference. I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. The cemetery that mm-hmm. I used to work in was called a memorial park. Uh-huh. Yep. So when I first found the job listing in the one ads, I wasn't really sure it was a cemetery. Oh, did you suspect? I suspected, but I thought it was just a park. You know, and then I got there and it was like, ah, it's a cemetery. <laughs> All right. I need a job. Yeah. So yes, Ray Bradbury, uh-huh. a Los Angeles writer. I, I keep bringing up just because there are those who would turn their noses up at Los Angeles as a uh, source of good literature. And perhaps the book that most champions books, Fahrenheit 451, was written here in Los Angeles in the uh, UCLA library. They say that Bradbury went there and rented a typewriter, as you could do, and typed out Fahrenheit 451. I didn't know that. Yes. I didn't know one could rent typewriters Talking of Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury used to have on HBO Ray Bradbury Theater, which I used to watch. They would be uh, half-hour episodes where he would go into the Bradbury building, no relation, huh. and then go into one of their sort of creepy elevators, which aren't really that creepy. They're very nice to look at. <laughs> um, and then he'd go where he kept his office that was filled with books and knickknacks. And then he'd Tchotchkes. Look, tchotchkes. And he'd look at one of these tchotchkes and he'd say... Oh, this reminds me of a story I'd like to write. Oh, how fun. And then he'd go into the story, the scary of which for me, I went back and watched. It wasn't that scary, mostly because it starred William Shatner, and I found myself unable to take him seriously. But it was called The Playground. Why would you feel that way, Marshall? That was, that was terrible. I'm sorry. 
I'll let it slide. <laughs> Uh, about a father who was bullied on a playground and now avoids that playground with, with his own son. Ah. Because, like, the kids that bullied him were still there <laughs> as kids. Weird. Yeah, it, it was. And I, as a frequenter of playgrounds, it just made playgrounds all the more scary. And then in school, I was in, like, an, an advanced kids program mm -hmm. for, for the little kids in elementary school and my parents went in for a parent teacher night and they tell me that the teacher of the like the gifted program uh, was praising them for exposing me to ray bradbury because when she brought up a ray bradbury short story in class i was like oh i know who that is ray bradbury he's a writer i don't know he's got i don't know how i proved that i knew him uh -huh. he's got somehow you pulled something out yeah and uh and a room full of tchotchkes and I, I may have mentioned, you know, Ray Bradbury Theater specifically. Oh, my gosh. My parents just took the praise. Yeah. And uh, and stayed quiet. Yeah. And, and you know, later reported, years later, re reported that back to me. That's adorable. Bradbury uh, was also good friends with Ray Harryhausen. Tell me, remind me who that is. Ray Harryhausen is a um, special effects legend. Uh -huh. um, his deal was stop motion. So um, Sin Sinbad, anything Jason and the Argonauts, anything where like skeletons moved on their own. Cool. And, and would like sword fight somebody. Yeah. Uh, that was Ray Harryhausen. Monsters from the Deep that would come out and be stop motion animated. That was his wheelhouse. His last really big thing was Clash of the Titans. Okay. They were friends. They were both in like a, a sci-fi society back in, uh, back in the day in Los Angeles. And Bradbury was writing for magazines, and he would write scenarios for TV shows. And Harryhausen uh, went to work on Monster from Beneath the Sea. The producers gave him the rundown how, like, this monster from the sea becomes attracted to a lighthouse and comes to land. Because, it, like, it thinks the lighthouse is its friend. <laughs> and then Harryhausen was like, hey, this is really familiar to me. My friend, also named Ray, uh, wrote this for a magazine a, a little while ago. And the producers just went, ah, crap. <laughs> so they then had to buy the rights to the story. The story was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Ooh. So it's kind of a chicken egg thing. Was it just a coincidence? Uh, was it a ripoff? Or... Did someone read it, absorb it, forget they'd read it? That's the popular version. Yeah. Spit it back out of their brains, not realizing. It yes. happens. We're all, you know, we're all influenced by the things that we take in. Yes. But I, I really do like the idea of a, a young Harryhausen and a young Bradbury Young men, probably at like a coffee shop late at night, just talking sci-fi. One of the things you like to be a fly on the wall for. Right. For every heart, there exists a wish. You ever play the numbers, Mr. Holloway? Hey. Uh, never take risks. For every soul, there burns a desire. Boy, you dumb. Always was. But never whisper your dreams. Or someone might be listening. <laughs> and for every wish, there will be a price. Ray Bradbury's fantasy tale of light and darkness is getting closer. Something wicked this way comes. Hey everybody, I'm Marshall Hicks. And I'm Kat Knight. And on this episode of Boys and Ghouls, we're going to be talking about Ray Bradbury and the Ray Bradbury movie, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Bradbury wrote the book, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. 
and then he wrote the screenplay for it when it was made by the Walt Disney Company back in uh, 1981. What, the, the movie? The movie. 83. My bad. Yep. Marshall, so would you classify Something Wicked This Way Comes as a horror movie? or Because or, some people call it fantasy. I would. Fantasy horror. Let's fantasy, call it. Fantasy horror. horror I think that's enough. fair. Well, I mean. Disney horror. I don't even know if I, I... I guess we could call it Disney horror, but I mean, we, as we get into talking about the movie in more detail, I found it to have so, so many more adult themes than I kind of expected. Uh, by the way, if you're listening to this, I need to tell you, Marshall saw this as a kid. It scared him. I had not seen this movie before tonight, so... That's, I think that's important to mention because you saw it as a kid and were traumatized and even told me about scenes that scared you. And I, I didn't have that experience. So, you know, Cat, it'll Cat be interesting. Cat is just fresh from having watched this moments earlier. Mm-hmm. That's right. So well, then we can sort of see what really affected me and see how you felt about that stuff as a kid. A synopsis of the movie. Let's do it. Well, it takes place in yesteryear. <laughs> we, that, that is the best description we can give. It is, in addition to a horror movie, a nostalgia horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Ray Bradbury was so very good at uh, romanticizing childhood. Right. And this, would we call this like a New England type town? Or... Uh, no, it's, uh, it's Midwest. I don't know if they made it clear in the movie. But I'm not sure they did. It's supposed okay. to be Illinois. Maybe I'm just an idiot. Okay, the, Illinois. The birthplace and childhood home of Ray Bradbury. Uh, before he and his family moved to Los Angeles. That makes sense. So the movie opens with a narrator explaining that autumn is a magical time. There's a thousand pumpkins. <gasps> and they show the pumpkins, a big field of pumpkins. And it's October 24th of yesteryear, whatever year that is. Olden times. Olden times. And, uh, and it, the narrator... It appears to be, um, not, not to be cheeky about it, 1920... What? Five? Sure. See, it's also like like small town middle America, so it's not like they're cutting edge. Right. So let's call it the late 20s. If they had a movie house in this small town, yeah. I'd be able to like, you know, get it within a couple years. Right. But they don't. Um, well, we know football was invented. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that only narrows it down, not I, at all. Actually, I know half a fact. Okay. Back in the day when football players... Uh, wore sweaters instead of what we now know is like mesh jerseys. Yes. They did not have numbers on their back. <gasps> but this town, one of the uh, the citizens of this town is, I guess he played college ball? He, he did, and he owns the bar now. And he, he owns the bar, but some unnamed war took one of his arms and one of his legs. Yeah. They, they don't even say war. It could have been a car accident. I think they did say war okay. once. Yeah. Took his arm, took his leg, yeah. and now he just has fond football memories. And to really just... Hammer the point home, he's always going around in his sweater, in his old football sweater, with his number on the back. And everyone kind of is always tossing footballs at him and talking about the glory days Yeah, like, you still got it, champ. Yeah. That, the, the, but the... I don't think, in, in the time this was supposed to take place, they were using numbers on the backs of sweaters. Okay. They didn't start doing that until, like, the 40s. That does narrow it down. The, Not the... really, it's just an anachronism <laughs> in the movie. The fact of this injured former football hero kind of brings us to talk about the town itself, which is pretty idyllic, but... Pretty much everybody in the town... People has, have wants. Well, have, three shop owners in, in a row on, on, on the main street. Are described, street. yeah. One is the barber who longs for exotic women. Yeah, Disney. Thanks, Disney. One <laughs> is the cigar shop owner who is... He loves money. He's money yes. hungry. And then there's... Oh, and then there's the bar owner who is... Aha! This would be before Prohibition. Right. Right? right? Well, it would have to be because the drinks like are flowing freely. Before Prohibition. This is Illinois... 
pre-prohibition Illinois, where kids still had fountain pens and inkwells in their desks. I love that we're using our deductive reasoning to get to this. Just kind of try to hammer out slowly when the heck this it took down. place. Yeah. So we're introduced to this town and this young boy. Two young boys. Two. Well, the one, narrator. What one is um, an adult version of himself narrates it. Mm-hmm. Um, and his. He is reminiscent to me. His name's Will Halloway. Will Halloway. Just picture a slightly older, older Ralphie. Yeah, but only slightly, and tinier. Like, these boys are, are 12 years old in the movie, which I thumbed through the beginning of the book. You have the book sitting right here. And the boys are just a hair shy of 14. And I think that's an important distinction. I yeah. think that's an important choice that was made for the movie to make them 12. 12 and 14 are very different ages, in my mm. opinion. 14, you're in high school. Mm-hmm. Or almost in high school. Right. 12 to 13, you get bar mitzvahed. <laughs> then you are a man. Right. So we have Will Holloway and his best friends. Jim Nightshade. Jim Nightshade. What a name. And Will Holloway tells us as he's narrating that he supposes this story is really his father's story. And we meet his father who is, they keep reiterating how old he is because his heart is old and tired and sad. He's got a, he's got a weak ticker. The town doctor uh, is sure to tell him no more than one drink and one cigar per day. Sound advice from the doctor. He's old and his son is uh, disappointed, kind of like Jeb was of Atticus Finch. I think that's Just fair. Just for a literary reference. We also meet an old, what would we call Tom Fury? A peddler. Uh-huh. Oh, Definitely. I like it. I was trying to think of the right word. Uh, a peddler. He's who goes literally peddling things. Yeah. Yeah, he peddles lightning rods. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, the sort of brand of crazy that knows more than it looks like he knows. Yeah, and, and he's stopped. We see him in the middle of the town talking to everyone about how there's a storm a-brewing and you're going to, you know, some houses need it more than others. And I can tell you which houses need these lightning rods. And people seem pretty enwrapped. It wrapped. They seem it wrapped attention. This old dirty man who's—I don't mean dirty, you no, know, dirty, sexually, but he was physically dirty. Yeah. Like he was covered in dirt. He had he had some hard road under him. Mm-hmm. Comes to town, gives a little vague warning about troubles to come, and those troubles come in the form of a steam engine, which arrives late at night, and sets up a carnival. Late at night. The day before the night that the carnival is set up, Will's father is walking around the town square and it's very windy and he sees this figure all in black in a top hat throwing flyers just willy-nilly into the wind and letting them fly about for people to grab them that tell about the carnival. And I found that moment to be the first like really kind of sobering, creepy moment for me. And I don't know about yeah. if, if that stuck in your head as a child, but for me, you don't see the man's face. You no. just see his back. And rather than paste them up, he's just kind of throwing them to the wind. I love that. Just I, trusting that it'll do its job. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty, that confidence and sort of darkness in him and, and the fact that you couldn't see, I wanted to see his face. I thought that was really cool. That was a cool moment. For, I don't know if, do you remember that moment as a kid? Doesn't stick out as much. It doesn't stick out as much as other moments. Maybe it's more. That was really more of Jason Robards' moment. Right. And Jason Robards being the father. Jason Mm -hmm. Robards excellently plays the father. The town librarian, who's a little too old to have a young son and is reminded of it uh, every day. Anywho. So the carnival. You were speaking of the carnival that sets up magically overnight. Yes. The boys witness it. And then you get a little conversation uh, with the dad who says that uh, it's oh, it's 3 a.m. It's what they call the soul's midnight. That's real creepy. And I don't remember 
tons from the book. I read it a while ago, but the part that sticks with me is a long portion that just talks about 3 a.m. Uh, it just talks about how it's too late for people staying up late and too early for people who get up early. And that if you really want to get something done when no one can see, then you do it at 3 a.m. That also makes me think about The Exorcism of Emily Rose, in which film the title character, she wakes up at, I think it's 2 a.m. I don't think it's 3 but every night, like when she's first becoming possessed, she kind of wakes up yeah. twisted into horrifying positions and can't move. And it's that witching hour. Always but 2 a.m. Yeah, right on the button. Which when my roommates and I, when we were in college, when we saw that movie, we all stayed up together until that time. And then probably 15 minutes after and then went to bed. <laughs> we just didn't want to be alone and risk being gnarled up into some scary possessed ball. But I digress. Um... And so, oh, and we get we get to hear the kid curse, which I think is important in a kids movie. You know, the, the when it, the... it was before uh, Goonies took the reins and mm. just said shit as much as they felt like, <laughs> right? Uh, and could still get a PG rating. This one was really effective for me. It's the the boys noticed the steam engine coming to town to bring the carnival that night, and one of the boys says, "It's a carnival," and he goes, "In the middle of the night," and the other boy goes, "Hell yes!" <laughs> and I thought that was really amazing. I, I thought for a young kid watching the movie, it would be like. Oh, cool. Yeah, kids are cool. Hell. We get to say hell. Yeah, I always think that that a well-placed curse word can really get kids on your side when you want them to like your movie. Oh, yeah. A, a curse word spoken by a child. Let's put it that way. The carnival that comes is Mr. Dark's Pandemonium Carnival, which just sounds really evil and lets you know up front it's an evil carnival. And people are showing up joyously to this yeah. carnival. And it's... I mean, the name of it alone, I, I, and the characters that are there, you know, running the carnival are just traditionally, I don't know how to put it without sounding discriminatory, but, you know, traditionally... To, to, to all of our carny listeners? Yeah. You know, the people who... You know what I mean. Circus folk. Nomads, you know. Smell like cabbage. Small hands. They have the... Well, it's a carnival of the damned. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. It made me think about, which I haven't seen, the movie Freaks. I know you've seen it. Yes. You had a bad reaction to, <laughs> to the dwarf clowns. I did. Well, it's not so much the dwarf aspect. It was just the clown part, which I'm not even that scared of clowns, but these were... You just these weren't... think most clowns you can hear sneaking up on you with their squeaky shoes and that the dwarf clowns... <laughs> I think it was more... silently. I think it was more that these clowns, the type of clown they were, it wasn't a jolly clown. They're having a parade at this moment in the film through town to bring more people... These it's clowns... It's like everybody come to the unhappy carnival. Oh, every... The parade, no one's smiling. The These clowns, they're just horrible looking it's like crazy not fun bo bozo hair on one of them it just that's what bothered me the marching band music that they play kept slipping like into a funeral dirge it was like that was very good i liked it that one of the things that happens at sort of this point in the film when the carnival has arrived the father and son they try to set up this relationship and they try to tell us that Will and his father, the old man, have a bit of a strained relationship and that there's this event that happened that they haven't talked about that we eventually learn 
is that the young boy, Will, when he was about four, he almost drowned. Yeah. And the father, who had never learned how to swim, didn't jump in to try to save him. And was too, well, not just his lack of knowledge of swimming, but just at, at his age with his bad heart and lack of courage. He froze up. He froze up and had to rely on someone else to save his own That's son. Right. Who was actually... Jim's absentee father. Jim Nightshade's father, who, yeah, who shortly thereafter split town and has yeah. never returned. So everyone in this town, even the little boys, want something that maybe Mr. Dark can deliver. But at what price? Right. The price and they all varies. want it very badly. The boys wind up seeing more than they should at this carnival. And we, just the audience, are getting little glimpses of what's going on. And they're at the carnival in the daytime. You know, it's the next day. They show up. They have, having seen it at night and been very mesmerized by the fact that it was erected spontaneously. Yeah. You know, it just went straight up. And they had snuck out to see it. And the next morning they wake up, they go to it, they go, Oh, this is just a fun, regular carnival. And they start exploring. They start exploring. As we get to follow some of the townsfolk around, in the House of Mirrors, the old football player uh, gets to see himself with his limbs back. And their frumpy teacher gets to see herself as a young beauty, as she once was. Apparently the biggest looker in town. Yeah, she, she comes out kind of in a daze. Which you, you kind of reminded me, this is similar in some ways to Needful Things. Stephen King's story yeah. about people desiring something strongly and then strangers come to town and bring out their desires, highlight them, and then prey on them. Them. And everything comes at a price. Mm -hmm. The first thing that the boys see that perhaps they shouldn't is the dancing girls. They call them erotic, exotic dancers. It's a lot of uh, belly dancers with many veils. And there's a hole in the tent, so the boys can get a good look at it. And they get to see the local barber who longs for the scent of a powdered woman. And is sweating profusely, showing us how incredibly lustful he is. Really gets to show us how we stayed single all this time. Oh my goodness. He gets brought up onto the stage by the many dancers and is just wrapped They're in ecstasy. They're all dancing around him and he's he's laughing with joy. And then it cuts to the boys, cuts back to him and he has no shirt on. No shirt. No shirt Shirt's on, gone. but just sort of like... Laughing maniacally. Getting surrounded by these women. And then uh, one of the circus dwarves comes up and like, Hey boys, scram. You're too young to be seeing this. And I'm like, what about the kids watching this movie? Are right. they too young to be seeing? Which brings me back to the whole idea that in the book, these boys are 14. They're a little, they're just a little bit older. And I, fa I found there were, there was a lot of sensual overtone in this movie. Or like sensual overtones and then just a very mature idea of sadness and loneliness and longing. And in my opinion, it was very, it was, for especially for it being a Disney film, it was very mature, maturely themed yeah. but we also see it probably ratcheted the kids down a little bit to appeal to kids right and jim nightshade he wants to become older without saying as much really because his mom only seems to enjoy the company of men and just sort of gives him a pass that's an incredibly adult situation don't you think yeah and if, if he was much older to want to become a man at you know 14 to 18 is not much of a jump 12 to 18, you might need a magical carousel to get you there. Might I just insert a little, um, probably maybe I'm overreaching a little, but a little bit of Oedipal implication here, which is sure. he asks his mother, this, I'm talking about Jim Nightshade, you know, the sure. one whose father left town. Uh, he asks his mother when she's putting him to bed one night, do, um, do, you know, do I look like him? Do I look like my father? And she says, yes, yes, you do. And when you leave my house, he'll die forever because that's, you know, you're all I have left of him. 
and for him to want to be older and want to, you know, he wants to know if he looks like his, maybe I'm reaching. Joe, that gives him motivation enough to be tempted to wander back into the carnival and, and get himself and Will into just more and more danger. The first time they go in, first it's just to see the carousel that they're not allowed to see because it's broken. And what they see is one of the uh, carnies getting on it and it goes backwards and it goes backwards and it goes faster and then he becomes a little boy. He does. And Mr. Dark is helming this carousel ride. We should mention that Mr. Dark is played by Jonathan Price, who plays Elizabeth Swan's father, Governor Swan, in all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which I think is crazy. You can also catch him in Brazil. Oh, yeah. I read in researching this that Ray Bradbury was hoping for Christopher Lee. Who would have done a bang-up job, but uh, Disney wanted to save a little money by going with a then-unknown Jonathan Price. I thought he did a really great job. Oh, he was I excellent. liked him. I thought he was kind of dashing, too. Great. Even with that 80s hair that wasn't supposed to be 80s hair. Yeah, everyone's got kind of shaggy 80s hair, despite it being some point in yesteryear. So, the boys are caught seeing what happens with the carny turning into the little boy, and they follow the little boy away from the carnival. To and where does he marm. go? He goes to the school marm, who's old, but wishes that she were young and beautiful beautiful again but of course as you've said everything comes at a price what happens to her what happens to her is one of those good sort of poetic justice turns which is she gets her beauty and then slightly after getting it goes blind probably 20 seconds after getting she gets like maybe 10 to 15 seconds of looking at her gorgeous blonde beautiful self in the mirror and then her eyesight just flat her eyes kind of flash a bright color and then they're gone it's like you're hot but you can never see it or anything else the irony the other uh, ironic reward, I guess. Oh, I know what you're about to say. <laughs> that, that, goes, uh, that goes out to the people of uh, Greentown is the barber who loves women so much. He's so lustful. He loves women. What happens to him? They turn him into a woman. Oh, no. Not just any woman. The bearded lady. The bearded lady. He's already got a beard as the town barber. And he's not played by a woman now. Like in the transformation from the school marm to the beautiful young lady. It's another actress. Mm-hmm. And this, they just stuck him in a dress. And when they put him in the parade... No uh, one from town notices. No, they're not like, hey, it's the barber in a dress. They're nope. like, hey, come and see the, the, the bearded oh, lady. Oh, the bearded lady who we don't recognize. Like, oh, okay. In one of the turns, it doesn't make as quite as much sense. The greedy tobacconist becomes a Native American. Well, and it's the... it's. The Native American, there's a statue it's, of yeah, the Native American in the, the traditional one that you see. It's the, it's the wooden Indian out in front of his... Uh, cigar shop. Yeah. Cigar shop. Uh, he does... He, he looks did, remarkably like it yeah. when they're done with him. <laughs> he does win $1,000 and, you know, in 1920, 11, we don't know. Right. Dollars. We're like, that's a lot of money. He wins it on like the, the Wheel of Fortune game yeah. at the carnival. And you're like, well, he's got his money and now he's a wooden Indian. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been better if he was a racist. Oh. And then got turned into yeah. a like, He's like, oh, I can't stand Indians. Which just reminded me of a tw- uh, the Twilight Zone movie. I'm remembering a character who was really racist yeah. uh, against Jews. Well, against uh, everyone. Uh, so. And then he's, he's spouting off his drunken mouth in a bar. Yeah. And then is what he's shucked back into a lot of different times, periods where he is that minority yeah. is treated as such. That's fun. Yeah, that would have been great if it were in this yeah. movie. Yeah, <laughs> take a lesson, Ray Bradbury. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyways. So the yeah. boys make their way back to the carnival when they happen upon Mr. Dark torturing Tom Fury on an electric chair to try to find out when this storm is coming. 
Yeah, that's when they already know what the carousel is capable of. Jim gets it in his head that he wants to be an adult. He goes, and instead this time they see the lightning rod salesman being interrogated as to when the next storm is coming because these people, the autumn people, the carnival folk, fear lightning for it. And rain. And rain. They say the lightning exposes us, uh, the darkness in us, and the rain washes away the dust or something very cryptic like yeah. that. So the lightning rod guy, he knows when the storms are coming, but he ain't saying. So they just sort of keep him uh, tied up. They actually make him part of the parade. They do. A little later, it's like, hey, come and see the clowns and the elephants and this guy we've got strapped to a chair. Yeah, it's pretty grotesque. I mean, he's just, it's not that he's injured or anything. He's just sitting there, but they've got him hoisted above there. And I'm like, ooh. Come and see the guy who came to town a few days ago. Before we did. (laughs) Right before us. But the boys are, are, one of the young boys hollers out, stop, stop hurting him when they're electrocuting. And then then they're found out. If they weren't already under suspicion as knowing too much, now it's game on. This is just done. Now Mr. Dark wants them. They run away. They run home. It's evil carnival versus two boys. First act of war is spider attack. Oh, dear heavens. Is this, well, first I want to back up and talk about the conversation. I think this happens right before the spider attack. When Will gets home and his father says, we're going to talk about that day that I didn't save you from drowning. They haven't talked about it. Yeah. And then this movie um, oscillates quite a lot in between father-son moments and fantastical evil carnival. Yeah. This whole conversation, I think it just really, I thought was a very interesting addition to tie in the whole regret. The father is so regretful of his cowardice and He kind of carries it as though the boy died. It's that serious to him. And that's what's weighing so heavily on him. And he and the boy have a heart to heart. I think Will wouldn't even mind the whole his father being old thing so much if the father himself didn't mind. Right. And but he just carries this guilt and and it makes him feel much older. And he's not spry. He doesn't run around. He gets winded easily. But they have this nice heart to heart. I thought that was nice. But yes, then it's spider attack time. Then Jim's in his bedroom. Will's in his bedroom. There's a glowing storm coming. So they can actually cross over into each other's homes using the tree that grows in between their homes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now they're both in Jim's room and a couple of spiders appear. What kind of spiders? Tarantulas. Oh, God. Uh, And then there's more and And more. more. And then they're climbing up them. He accidentally steps on one. Oh, that was the worst. They're suddenly under the bed sheets. They're suddenly on the doorknob. They're everywhere. He's climbing up his pajamas. They're swatting it off of themselves. Oh, just everywhere. I understand that on their own, tarantulas are pretty lackadaisical. And then to make them act, you have to introduce a female. Really? Yeah. That was in the uh, the terrifying to know. commentary. Oh, my goodness. That they're just sort of hanging out, hanging out, and then they're like, let's introduce the female. And then they're like, bah, tarantula. Do you know that there are lots of different colors of tarantulas? There are yellow ones, there are orange ones, there are brown ones with yellow spots, and that they also, certain breeds of them can leap like four feet. Yeah, they're jumpers. That's the worst thing I've ever known in my life. All all of these guys would just crawl all over stuff, crawl up boys' pajamas, crawl up the door, crawl up the walls, crawl under the bed. Yeah. Which is pretty scary. I can't imagine them leaping. I mean, I I don't even know how to handle that. I was listening to a news story on NPR one night, and they were talking about arachnophobia and how there are these therapies, exposure therapies that help people get over those fears. And so they slowly introduced them to touching these tarantulas. They use tarantulas because they're big. But this one woman called in and she said that she 
for years lived in some southwestern state. It was Nevada or New Mexico or something. And apparently there are a lot of them in the wild there. And that they will cross the road, like hundreds of them. And there's nothing you can do but drive over them. And it's slick and gross because you, you squish them. But she was saying that one day she was walking down the street and happened upon many of them. And they were leaping at her. And she re- she goes, well, I realize that, yes, they can leap far and high, but I can outrun them. And I was like, how does this woman sleep ever? Can you imagine just happening upon a gaggle of, or whatever you would, I don't know, it's probably a murder of tarantulas, <laughs> like crows. And then they're le- leaping, leaping at you. But these didn't leap. They just crawled menacingly. And I thought they did a good job of having, like, a lot of cl- really quickly cut, close you know, close-ups. These, like, these tarantulas. Like little like dwarf stuntmen in pajamas with tarantulas on them. Those kids seem to do quite a bit of their own tarantula work. Yeah. Yeah, was, they dealt with it. No shortage of tarantulas and boys. But then at the height of their terror, they both wake up. Ah! It was all a dream. In their own beds, sweaty and terrified. Now these spiders were sent to them and sent to their dreams by a woman credited as the Dust Witch. I think that's a really cool name. Yeah, the, the Dust Witch, played by Pam Greer. End of your rotten life, you dope pusher. Ooh, Jackie Brown. And if you ever wonder what Pam Greer was up to in between coffee and Jackie Brown, she was the dust. Something witch. wicked this way comes. She was great. She was this beautiful, terrifying. She has this gorgeous face, and she's the fortune teller in one scene. She rides the Ferris wheel with the greedy cigar seller in another. She's and then she's when that a, one ends, it's just her and a cigar. Uh, that's right. Yeah. You don't, and you don't know what happens during that. Nope. That he around. disappears. And then we, we do get to see her in a glorious black, like wedding dress at one point. She's yes. just great. They really use her exotic beauty to uh, its fullest advantage here. But when the boys are discovered, you know, to know too much, they send her after them. She's less menacing and more, you know, you get to see her face kind of change into like skeleton Yeah, it's, it's towards, towards the end. Towards the end. But, you know, she's mostly just kind of a scary image rather than, she doesn't really attack too much. Now, this is a Disney movie and the lightning and the fog and various special effects were all, I'm going to say hand-drawn. Yeah. Uh, cartoon animation. It looked like that to me. You know, several years before uh, computers would take over that kind of job. I thought it was really effective. And it, it was really, really cool. just reminded you that it's Disney. Well, yeah. It like, yeah. It looked like bed knobs and broomsticks. It did. Kind of yeah, there's effects. there's a scene where Mr. Dark is tearing pages out of a book and they're lighting up as he tears them. And it, I mean, it's clearly, yeah, that, clearly that, that hand-drawn really animation. Effective. But it was cool. It was really neat. And that heightened surreality was really appropriate for the events of the film. I, th- I thought it made sense to have the effects that way. It would be cool to see how all that would be done today. I would imagine that film would have a very Harry Potter vibe to it as far as the way it would look and feel. I don't know. That's my best guess. Hmm. Just very pleasantly craggly and dark. Or I don't, I don't know. Maybe it would be steampunk. Like um, I was thinking steampunk. Were you thinking that? Yeah. Well, they would just take, uh, nothing else, his top hat and go with it. Yeah. Mr. Dark's and build the entire top hat. All the costuming and everything around that. If it was done today, I think it would take a very Tim Burton edge. Ooh, yeah. To where it's like the small town would still be the small town. But then the circus would just be crazy Tim Burton circus. It would be. Speaking of, um, okay, so we keep going back to this parade. We keep talking about this parade that they yeah. end up putting on through town that has all these townsfolk who've been turned into the part of their damned parade. But at this point in the film, that's when that hap- when this happens, is the day after their nightmares. And we see this parade going on and the boys are hiding because Mr. Dark and crew are kind of after them. They're sort of canvassing the town mm-hmm. in the form of a parade. 
Right. To look for the two boys. They managed to get out a phone call to Jason Robards and then go and hide under like a sewer grate, a storm right. drain. So Jason Robards, dad shows up and he's looking for the boys and Mr. Dark happens upon him and he says, and I quote, I'm a stranger in this town. My name is Dark and I'm looking for two small boys. Good Lord! Who would give someone information with that kind of phrase? Yeah, I'm just saying. Both of us were taking notes while watching this movie uh, separately. We, we have not let each other see our notes. No. What I wrote down was how Dark doesn't know how to talk normal. And <laughs> That's he an understatement. He's, he's too old and too evil. Like, he has a lot of trouble. You can see in, in Jonathan Price's um, acting uh-huh. that he's just kind of hanging on, doesn't really know how to talk to normal people in, like, pleasant conversation. I like that. I, that makes it more comical than it came across to me when I think about it through that filter. Because oh, for uh, me, I... It made I, it yeah. extra creepy to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, this guy's, like, so far removed from being human, he's slowly just sort of forgetting how to talk oh, yeah. to normal people. Like, he's a Barlow from, you know, Salem's Lot. Like, he's just an old, really old vampire or something. Well, he, recently, I believe I saw that same kind of performance out of the remake of Fright Night. Yes. Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell. He seems to laugh at like the wrong times yeah but in his eyes it looks like he's trying to remember at what point in a, in a casual conversation to laugh a little bit that is pretty creepy yeah yeah i like that i didn't think it's, about it that it's way it's like sometimes there'll be a vampire movie or book and it'll be they have to remind themselves to blink yeah that kind of thing Ooh. but in conversation humanity yeah hard, very hard very to creepy. imitate it is now marshall uh i know this is hard for you but we're mm. gonna have to talk about this and i'm gonna make you do it because the whole reason why we decided to watch this film is because you've been telling me about it for years now. Yeah. That there was this one scene in the movie that really scared you as a kid. And it happens oh, yeah. when Mr. Dark is talking to Jason Robard's character. So they're having a conversation. Mr. Dark is saying, I'm looking for these boys. And the dad, of course, is trying to deflect that and keep yeah. him from finding he, he them. And what happens? Well, he says, I'm looking for these boys. Let me show you a couple pictures of them. And he has tattooed on his hands the images. The insides of his hands. The inside, the palms of his hands. First one face. And he's like, he has the dark head one. And he has the fair head boy. And Jason Robards is one, he lies about their names. And two, is lying just in his demeanor that he doesn't just start screaming. Right, because it's horrifying. And I think he does a pretty good job, like, though. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Two fine boys. A credit to their town. And it's normal that you've got them tattooed on your <laughs> like, palms. That's not weird at all. Yeah. And he gives them a couple of fake names. And, uh, and Dark is not happy to be lied like, to. Like, you're lying to me. And then, okay, here's, here's, here's the bit that, uh, that gets me. Oh. He squeezes his palm super hard in anger until blood starts to come from between his fingers. And some of it then drop down because this whole exchange is happening over top of the grating where the two boys are hiding. Mm-hmm. So what's unanswered to me, low these many years, is he like voodooing the boy and like crushing his face? That's what I think isn't being implied. Or... Is that his, just his own blood? He's just hurting himself. I think it must be the latter because we see Will who gets his, who gets the blood drips down onto his face, yeah. but he doesn't appear to be in pain or anything. But I think, you know, I, the implication to me would be it's if he has gross. his hands and it's magical and that it would be some kind of voodoo thing, but it doesn't seem like that's it. I think yeah. he's just really squeezing in, with, in anger on his own hand and lose, the blood, which is still really pretty disturbing. Yeah. It's like little boy tattoo voodoo versus self-mutilation. Yeah. And neither. Neither. Well who wants to pick between those? Now, 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 well, here's the crossroads of our whole experiment here. I, I'm walking around with things that scared me when I was a boy. You are seeing this for the first time. 
Yeah. Uh, so, Kat, your impressions on that scene? Well, I also you had also told me how much it scared you as a kid, so I was ready for it. I mean, oh, when okay. it, when the scene happened, you know, I looked at you and I said, "Are you going to be okay, Marshall?" Because I know it's been a while since you watched it. I was leaning forward in a way that looked like I was cringing, but I was also eating watermelon and trying not to drip it on the carpet. Right. Well, I mean, my impression of the scene was. I don't know. I was so taken aback by how intent this creepy, dark stranger was on finding these two small boys to give them the prize they so dearly deserved. I just couldn't stop thinking, pervert, pervert. That's just my modern sensibility of like, you're looking for two young boys. What a creeper. (laughs) His rap was like, They've won an award at the carnival games. I must I just want give, to give it, it to them. them. Yeah. It's like, uh, Sarah, why don't you just give it to them later? I mean, I guess I was trying to watch. I mean, does, did it scare me as an adult? No, that moment. But thinking about watching that as a child and, as, you know, you're watching a movie from the perspective of a child and you're living vicariously through these kids. Yeah. Imagining that some It's a creepy... lot easier to do when you're actually a boy. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're... I thinking about what how I would have experienced it as a kid what a magically blissfully scary moment that would be to watch as a child like oh some adult is after us you know this is serious and, and it's very dr- melodramatic I think for a kid uh, for me I'm like thinking yeah that probably would have been pretty scary as a kid but I can't I just can't put myself you know, in you that know what, place uh, just occurring to me now they did sort of a roll call of the townsfolk they're like here's a librarian and here's the bartender and here's the barber and here's this uh, school teacher. Never was there a, and here's the police officer. There were no police officers. There, there was also no green grocers, but there was never any uh, images of law and order huh. in this movie. That didn't occur to me. But that's okay because by now uh, they've got Jason Robards on, on their side. They have an adult who actually believes in them. They meet up in the library and they say, we didn't think anyone would believe us. And he said, well, I believe you. And he said, why wouldn't anyone believe you? And they said, because we're kids. And I think that's such a perfect moment for a kid's movie because that's how you feel when you're a kid. No one listens to you. And Jason Robart says, it's because you're kids that I believe you. It's because you're kids that I believe you. That's just great. But soon Mr. Doc comes into the library after the kids. It does a little negotiating with Jason Robards and offers him his youth back. Mm-hmm. But he, he tells me you'd better take up the offer pretty quickly because he's he's it's taking going. the years. He starts off. at thirty and then just goes like thirty-one. Rip. Ooh, 32. ripping pages out of a book. Thirty-five. Rip. What a great age you that can would still be. Still learn how to swim. Going, going, gone. gone. Thirty-six. Thirty-seven. Thirty-four. Thirty-five. Thirty-six. Thirty-seven. Thirty-eight. Thirty-nine. Fifty. Fifty-two. You're lost. <laughs> What a great scene that was. It yeah. was so cool. It was a nice little face-off, you know, and he's kind yeah. of... it was a test of wills. It was, yeah. It was, a, it was a battle of wills. Right. You know, he expects the old man just to break because yeah. he knows how weak he is, but the old man surprises him and doesn't. I, I think in lieu of action in a movie, decisions are the most powerful. I had that thought when I was watching that scene because I thought it was so climactic and it's just mostly one person talking, but the way it felt very heightened and the stakes felt very high and there wasn't much physically happening and i was like what a great what a great scene and especially in a movie that does have a lot of action in it but this was one of maybe the most powerful moment in the whole movie for me but it was cool and it was just a person doing a performance he was great so he uh he does manage in the end to find the two boys and then tells the dust witch to give the librarian a taste of death so when it comes again he will recognize it oh so so creepy she just incapacitates him but he eventually rallies and goes to find his son, who's in the House of Mirrors, where he gets tempted even further by just images of... Well, he doesn't really get tempted. 
He, he more just gets um, pushed to the brink by. They send him the image of being by that lake or whatever yeah, they, the day they, they take that him his back son to the almost day drowned. By the river. He drives the point home of all the other townsfolk who have fallen under a spell. Yep. And the library talks about how like people's misery calls them like dogs in the night, and he's like, an old man wishing for youth again. I can hear you from across the world. Yes. Yes. And we do find out also in that library scene, just rewinding just a tad, yeah. that the dad is reading to the boys from a, the journal of his father. His father's old his journal. His father's journal, where he talks about the autumn people and how for years there have been tales of these people who will visit every couple of years or something. Sounds like once a generation. Once a generation. Yeah, because then people have time to forget. But then, the, and they always leave. At, there's always a a storm. large storm when they leave yeah and so he so jason robards knows there this has been happening and kind of i guess maybe that's motivation to break the chain part you know that's part of it but yeah, yeah they end up back in the house of mirrors where he's been pushed and pushed and pushed and he's he it is revealed to him all these other people who have kind of taken the apple yeah. if you will and he gets out of this one with love with love i love it love heals all his son is in there and his son's looking for him he's looking for his son and they tell Jason Robards, your son hates you. Basically, what do you have to live for? He hates you. You might as well come yeah. with us. And the son says, I love you. I love you, Dad. And it echoes and echoes and all the glass breaks and all the mirrors shatter. And they're just left. Father uh, and son hug. In an embrace. But there's still the matter of uh, saving young Jim Nightshade, who's going to oh. hop onto the carousel, be turned older, and then be made prodigy. Mm-hmm. This will be Dark and Nightshade's pandemonium. Nightshade and Dark. Nightshade and Dark and Nightshade. Nightshade and Dark. So he's got the, the carousel all rigged up to send him forward in time. And uh, at the crucial moment... Two things happen. Jason Robards pulls the boy off and lightning strikes the carousel, sending it faster and faster and faster. And then uh, Jonathan Price ages and ages and Mr. ages. Mr. Dark. Yeah, he turns into like a creepy half mummy, half skeleton bag of bones. Yeah, not quickly either. No, it's really gruesome and it happens <laughs> nice and slowly. So we get to see his Keep just spinning. pruning it's up. It's really gross. Older and older. And then the whole carnival gets... Well, while this is going on, things aren't looking great for young Nightshade. The will starts to cry. But the dad says, stop your tears. They feed on tears and misery. <laughs> Jump around. Swoop your arms. Be a whooping Be crane. Be happy. Be happy. Uh-huh. And after the carnival has been swept up by a pretty awesome cyclone. Uh, it's a twister. Cyclone. Yeah. Yeah, a twister comes, just takes a carnival. The tents go up. The Gets ripped off the ground and into the air. Crumples the, the Ferris wheel up and takes that up too. It takes a whole carnival. The three of them escape, Jason Robards and, and the, the two boys. And from then after, Jason Robards has learned a good lesson to be young in his heart. And, and therefore he's young in body. And they and it's daytime and they all kind of run slash skip into... To into, the barber pole. They race to the barber back pole. Back to town, yep. Whose light from the barber pole Mr. Dark had taken away. But now it's returned. They touch it and it lights up. It's not so happy of an ending to where the barber comes back a dude again. Yeah. And, you know... Right. We guess we don't see that. No one gets huh? returned. If you went damned in this movie, you stay damned. That's pretty dark yeah. for a kid's film. And then the narrator comes back and says, like, hey, just remember, I was an old guy narrating this, so nothing really that bad was going to happen to me. Right. The end. <laughs> <laughs> kids movie. Well, the, the big question was, did I find still find it scary? Yes. Now, as, as a man? Yeah, I want to know. And, and not a boy? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, it stayed with me. Some of it was just the old fears. Some of it is because it's a genuinely creepy, spooky movie that when I worked at a video store, I would recommend to like the occasional mom who would come in and say, 
hey, I've got a sleepover. They want something scary, but I'm really not going to show them, you know, that scary. What can I do? I'd, I'd be like, something wicked this way comes. I think that would be a great suggestion for a sleepover movie. Because yeah. there's a lot of validation for kids in it. Kids get to feel like the hero and like it's this big, important, fantastical plot all centered around these boys. I mean, these boys are all important to Mr. Dark. And you know? there, there's some great concepts that you see a lot in science fiction, fantasy, and horror that if you're young enough are being introduced to it for the first time. Mm -hmm. One of them being, we'll grant your wishes at a price. Right. There's that idea that anything really worth having, you have to work for. And if you don't have it, there's probably a good reason. You can't get something for nothing. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a really good morality play to have. And just the, the idea of a device that can age you or make you younger again. Um, I, I would like your overall thoughts on Something Wicked This Way Comes as, okay. as an adult watching it for the first time. I really thought this movie was incredibly dark for a kids movie which i think is saying a lot because i think there are a lot of dark kids movies but for me this just had so many adult themes i thought it really i guess what i'm getting at is that i think it played to children the intelligence of children i don't think it talked down to the kids who might be watching it it was very much uh it very much treated them as a smart watcher kids who could handle you know, the postulating, all the, the big scenes of talking, you know, like with Mr. Dark. I thought it, there were images that scared me, but it didn't fill me with the world's deepest dread. And it, even though it was set in um, October, right near Halloween, yeah. you know, and even some of the promotions I've read, it said Halloween comes early. Well, for me, it didn't feel as Halloween-y, but that's okay. I thought the concept of a carnival, I, I loved it. I thought it was really fun. I would recommend it to anyone hosting a sleepover for children or anyone who wants to watch a fun movie. Yeah, would you recommend it to like an adult who you know would, would just be watching it by themselves as an adult? I yes, right. I think it's a good movie. I think it's got really solid ideas. I mean, it makes me it kind of makes me want to read more Bradbury because I'm not that well versed, but the concepts that are in it, I'm kind of a fan of. I like the idea of how he gets across those moral values that he's trying to portray. And I, I also, I have to share this. I noticed as I was looking through your copy that you have here, checked out from the Burbank Library. I yes. love that you check out library books. And I asked you who you thought he had dedicated his book to. And you said, I don't know, his dad, something like that, family member. Good guess. And uh, I just find this to be so interesting. Ray Bradbury dedicated Something Wicked This Way Comes, the novel, to, well, it says, with love, to the memory of Gene Kelly, whose performances influenced and changed my life. I wonder if this was just an admiration thing, if he, if he ever, ever met, him? met him, or, you know. That would be interesting to find out. But I like knowing that. Dancing and singing in All right, I think that uh, pretty much wraps things up. Aw, we're uh, done with episode four? Well, that wraps up our fourth episode. I'm very sad. But i tell you what I am excited about. The fact that there will be another episode of Boys and Ghouls on the 13th of next month. The 13th of every month is when our uh, podcast drops. This particular podcast will be dropping on a Friday the 13th. <gasps> and you know what? I looked at it. I realized we should have done the obvious route and, you know, done yeah. a Friday the 13th podcast. I realized that we have missed our shot until, like, 2013. Really? So. Not a lot of Friday the 13th in your future, people. But maybe we'll be... A little different and do a Friday the 13th, not on Friday the 13th. That's how I think outside the box. That shows you how dangerous my life is. All right. If anybody would like to get in touch with us, you can write to us at boysandghouls at gmail.com 
or check out our Tumblr, Boys and Ghouls Podcast. Uh, check out our Pinterest. Got a lovely Pinterest account going. And we're also on Facebook. Like us on Facebook and leave a comment on iTunes. And while you're doing all these things, let us know how you heard of us, because I am burningly curious. Yeah, we're all over the internet, guys, so take a look. We're, we're always posting really fun pictures and videos and asking you questions about your love of horror movies, so uh, it's really worthwhile if you're into it. We're into it. We have a lot of fun. All right, Kat, that's another one in the can. Good job. Thank you. Good job for you, Marshall. And uh, as always, beware the moon. Yeah. Take care.